Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Today's episode of Pixel Sift is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash Pixel Sift. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from for you on your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Pixel Sift and it's actually episode 2 of Pixel Sift Mitchless edition. Today I'm joined in the studio by Scott and James. We've pulled him away from the keyboard and put him in front of a camera and a microphone this time. <laughs> Say hello. Hello, hello. Hello. Well, good. Yeah. Good instructions there. Yep. Uh, and we're also joined by the via the wonders of the internet by Ellen Urich of Blowfish Studios. And Ellen, you're going to tell us a little bit about your game and your experience working in the gaming industry. Yeah. Nice to meet you guys. Well, meet you <laughs> online again. <laughs> and we will continue this conversation throughout the episode. But we've got a few other topics to talk about, haven't we? Yeah, sure. Uh, loot boxes, trash or treasure? We open up this topic with a legendary drop drop probability of one in seven. <laughs> we'll also be looking at why Crytek is back in the news again for all the wrong reasons. That all sounds very exciting. Shall we jump in? We shall. Let's do it. You're listening to Pixel Sift, or you might be watching Pixel Sift on Twitch. Pixel Sift. So this week, developer Crytek hit the news headlines yet again for failing to pay their staff. This is the second time, with the last time being in 2014, that the developer has reached the news for unpaid wages. The independent developer of games such as the original Far Cry and Xbox exclusive Rise is once again faced with poor management and mass walkouts. And this will be our topic, first topic for today. Uh, this all came about in the news uh, earlier this week when a Reddit post appeared. Uh, crying for help and advice from the community. And uh, that's spurred on a bunch of other stories that have popped up everywhere and it's, uh, it's big hot news again this week. It's really interesting. I think uh, the, a lot of the commentary around this particular story is that this seems to be sort of one person's perspective at the moment and it's kind of a bit difficult to uh, verify exactly what is going on here. Um, you know, a big development studio like Crytek, which involves, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people um, will often do sort of subcontracting work to, to other smaller groups. Um, and, you know, there's some sort of discussion about what the actual contracting terms of this uh, particular agreement is. Do they get paid at the end of the job or do they get paid as they're, as they're going through? So it's sort of something to, to think about and, and I guess 
having this attached to a studio like Crytek, which a lot of people would know, uh, used to be Crysis used to be the one that everyone would uh, chuck on their computer when they bought a new machine to test it all out. Um, it, it, it does sort of prompt some interesting Interesting discussions, I think. Well, I don't know about the contracts per se, but I know that when this first came up uh, as an original problem in uh, about mid-2014, there was all these kind of um, rules that the uh, employees had to abide by, like that they couldn't discuss their salaries via emails and all this sort of stuff to avoid, I guess, a kind of paper trail, I guess. And, and, and I guess about information leaking via that kind of trail. Um, so that kind of tactic leads to not very... Um, well-rounded contract. I mean, that's just assumptions and I probably shouldn't make them, to be fair. Ellen, you've worked for a number of um, game development studios. If someone sort of said to you, don't talk about your contracts and all that sort of stuff, how, how would that sort of make you feel? And Or is that common practice? Um, that, that's actually been common practice in the places that I've worked at. Um, it seems to be like, I, I don't particularly agree with it. Um, and I have worked at, you know, obviously non-games companies as well, where it was very open about who like who was earning what. And, and that was simply because, for example, all of the casual staff members were paid in, in the exact same rate or it was relative to uh, your age or, you know, it was really, really clear and obvious who was being paid what and why. Um, whereas in the games companies that I've worked for, it's not always been as transparent why someone should be um, paid a certain way, what makes someone a junior versus a mid-level versus a senior versus a manager, and, you know, why Why is one person, why should one person be paid more than someone else? Um, that doesn't mean that individuals can't discuss what they're on in their own time, and often when that has come up, you know, it, it, it sort of comes out that people are being paid more or less what they're expecting. They're there's no huge discrepancy, um, but that that clause certainly has popped up in a few contracts that I've seen. I guess it's really interesting as uh, people kind of go through these sort of things, there is usually a sort of a difference in, I guess, position of power almost in that if you're a junior person working in a studio and this is the first one that you've ever worked in and you don't have that years of experience to sort of draw on, how do you kind of value what your work is worth and, and if you can't directly compare it with other people, uh, I guess you could do it off the books at the tea room, you know, make yourself a cup of coffee or whatever. But, you know, how do people kind of value their, their work? And um, um. I suppose that it's the same. I, get, I guess you'd get this kind of problem in a lot of other artistic industries as well. And it's like, um, yeah, a lot of young people would be exploited in that kind of way. And they've got to kind of figure out how much, you know, how they're willing to push and how much they're willing to put up with, I guess, because they're obviously they're there for a bit of a love and a passion being developers, especially yeah, indie, indie developers, you know, and it's like how much of it are you willing to do for love and how long does that love stretch? Very good question. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's true as well of um, a lot of contracting, even if it's not in games or not necessarily creative industry, it, it becomes very hard to gauge how much your services are worth, um, especially if there's elements of um, not feeling... I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but not feeling like maybe you know as much as someone else, like you feel like you're riding on just talent or um, you aren't very experienced, so therefore you shouldn't be charging as much as someone else who's got, you know, 10 years on you, even though they may not be as good at what you do as you are. Um, it becomes very, very hard, and it's hard as well going from, say, full-time work to contracting, knowing how much to be charging per hour because it is quite different um, 
But, I mean, in terms of positions within the games industry, there are things like Glassdoor, which allow you to go and sort of salary check. There used to be the um, game developers, the Games Career Guide salary survey every year as well. But I, I sort of noticed, I don't know, maybe it's come up since I last checked, but it sort of seemed to drop off the last couple of years. I don't know if they've been really focusing on that as much, but that used to be a really good way of looking at what does someone with my level of experience in my industry get on average, even though that was usually in America, which doesn't necessarily apply anywhere else. Um, it gave you an idea of, of what the range was, at least relative to other disciplines as well. In Australia, at least, it seems like there's been a bit of a, at least in the sort of last five, ten years or so, a sort of a transformation of what the Australian game development industry looks like. Um, we previously had a bunch of uh, smaller uh, branches of big studios from around the world and some of those have, have disappeared now and people have gone off and, and, and moved into mm. sort of middle to, to getting bigger studios as well. Do you think people are sort of, it's hard to sort of determine what it is if people are out there on their own back creating their own studios and this sort of move to an indie perspective is more people kind of do it for the love of it? Um, I think I think there is a lack overall in sort of government support for incentives for um, to, to sort of really strengthen and encourage the industry in Australia. We've seen that in Victoria there's a lot more incentives than the other states get and it's really grown and been supportive there. Outside of that, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, I'd love to be able to reclaim the word amateur in the way that, you know, uh, in theatre, I've got a theatre background and, you know, talking about amateur theatre, the word amateur comes from the word to love. So it's really not about being, you know, a bad person that can't do it professionally. It's someone that does it for love, regardless of whether they're being paid or not. And I think there is a lot of that love behind what people do as, as indies because there is just that drive to create and that drive to contribute. It's uh, definitely a very interesting topic and one that is always going to come up as uh, these sort of stories come out. Uh, we'll hopefully find out a bit more information about what the, the backstory behind this particular uh, Crytek sort of issue is. We'll be putting links up to that on our website, but right now let's jump into our next topic. You're listening to Pixel Sift. We are still joined by Ellen uh, from Sydney's Blowfish Studios. Ellen, you're a producer and a game designer. Now, most people probably know what a yeah. game designer is, but what does a producer do in terms of making a game? So um, I've done a bit of production in, this is my the third company that I've been at where I've done production, and it does really depend on the kind of work that, like the kind of, the, the size of the company the number of projects running. Um, I've worked in, you know, one company that had, I think, about 70 people working on one project versus uh, another company that was the studio itself, which was a, a branch of a, a larger company, um, was, I think it was, I think it was about 90 people, but we were in teams of variable numbers that went up to, say, 30. And then here at Blowfish, we've got Oh, I think about 16, 17 people now. And um, we're currently on, I think we figured out about seven projects at the same time. Um, so what that means for a producer is quite different depending on what the requirements are for the game. But overall, 
the producer's job is essentially to let other people do their jobs unhampered. That would be the best definition I could come up with. So that could be anything from scheduling of tasks, gathering requirements. It could be ordering overtime food, unfortunately. Um, it could be just making sure that everyone's okay, not necessarily in a, like an HR perspective, but you could be that first person that people want to talk to about any issues that they've got with, um, yeah, anything that's just getting in the way of their work. It's sort of your responsibility to, to jump in there and, and try and clear away those impediments. Is it, I guess when you're sort of defining the role as being quite broad um, and, and there are sort of a you know, variety of different hats that you need to wear when you're doing that, is it difficult not to, to take on too much? Very, very. Um, and I think uh, I was, you know, I was talking to another producer about this recently. There's this kind of tendency to want to, like, to, you'll feel like you're never doing quite enough and often, often as a producer, if you're not taking on another role, like I'm doing game design as well, if you're not taking on another role, you can kind of end up feeling like you've spent all of this time here, but there's nothing that you can point to and say, I did that. And it can be quite demoralizing when you feel like I'm working on these games and I helped get this game out, but what did I do that was special? I did nothing unique. Did I actually bring anything to this? Um, so that can sort of push you to do one of two things, uh, neither of which are very good, but in different ways they're bad. One is that you can basically overwork and overextend yourself and try and push too hard and, you know, almost burn out from being in first and out last all the time. And the other thing that you can do is you can grow really apathetic. And I've seen producers that basically just busy work all the time but do nothing and leave, you know, bang on time and don't arrive, you know, any earlier or anything like that they're basically doing nothing they're just there because they're just cruising kind of thing and that's to me that's more detrimental to the team whereas kind of overworking is more detrimental to the individual and probably beneficial to the team weirdly enough so what do you do to to stop yourself from from taking on too much or or not become too apathetic about the things that you have to do in your day-to-day um i think ultimately it's well, there's two, those are two sort of different problems to get yourself out of. So for a situation where you are trying to push yourself and do too much, it's really important to, to talk to and express your concerns, your stresses, your fears. I mean, I used to kind of think, I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm stressed about this. I'm not going to let anyone know that, you know, it's, the team shouldn't have to deal with my stress over, you know, the client or the, um, you know, the demands that are being made, I need to look, you know, I need to protect them from any of that stress and kind of weather it myself. But I ended up finding out that some of the developers that I worked with assumed that I wasn't stressed and I was just blasé about it and that I was just dumping things on them and not trying to protect them. And they had no idea what I was doing to try to protect them. And that undermined what I was striving to do, which was to have kind of a team mentality um, and a lot of, you know, shared morale. So I learned that once I do share some of that, that actually helped a lot more. And it also meant that they, they could then reflect back that they appreciated what I was doing to help them and that then fed 
the need to feel like I was actually doing and I was actually helping. I was actually getting that feedback. Um, to avoid getting apathetic, I think it's just one of those things that it's like you get too far into the other camp. You, you know, you, you stress yourself too much and then ultimately you just go, is this even worth it? And you, like, I, I don't know how to get out of that. I haven't got into it and um, I hope I never get into, yeah, I hope I never, ever get apathetic because that's just um, a, a bad way to be. But anytime I have nearly gotten like that, I mean, ultimately I did the same thing. I shared and I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm stressed about this. I'm worried about this. I either talk to my boss or colleagues or, you know, even people on a different project and just say, you know, uh, it's just overwhelming. And, and just to have that, that vent, because even though you are there to make sure that there are no impediments, nothing blocking, nothing getting in the way of them doing their work, it's that whole thing of like, how can you care for anyone else if you're not caring for yourself? So you've got to make sure that you're not getting overwhelmed either. So you're working on a number of projects at the moment and obviously it's keeping that balance between uh, working hard but also not working yourself uh, to the bone. Uh, could you tell us a little bit yeah. about some of the stuff that you're working on at the moment? We had a chance to play some of the, the games, uh, namely uh, Siegecraft Commander yep. at, uh, at PAX and for Scott it was actually his uh, one of his first... Uh, <clears throat> it was my first proper VR experience, yeah. Tell um, us a little bit about how that game oh, kind had- of came about or... Um, I think I think the game kind of came about with um, it was a combination between I wasn't there when it started by the way but um, so I'll just you know full <laughs> disclaimer I wasn't there when when it started up um, but it was a combination between um, someone showing this this old game that they'd played called Moonbase Commander which had a very similar mechanic um, and also continuing the Siegecraft. Um, IP, which is Blowfish's own um, IP. So it was a combination of those two um, inspirations, really. Yeah. So I did I did get to play the Siegecraft Commander in the platform uh, condition as well as the VR. It was uh, quite amazing to see the difference between the games, I guess, and, and the, the leaps and bounds that it goes in the creativity and control that you have in the VR environment. Is it, uh, is it really nice to be able to... I know that you didn't uh, specifically work with um, the Siegecraft Commander, like you said, but um, for future stuff, what is it like comparing uh, you know, the, the world of platform and console, let's say, to VR as far as on a design level anyway? So in terms of design, we, we actually had this really sort of lucky experience where because Siegecraft Commander does have that top-down, tabletop feel already, yeah, when we put it so. in, you know... Yeah, when we just tried to, you know, let's try it in VR. We kind of, you know, why not? Like we're trying out VR, we're doing different experiences, we're making more kind of, you know, we, we do a lot of contract work. And so we've tried to make a few little bits and pieces of experiences and demos that are more kind of what you would expect of um, VR experiences, more first person, you know, moving around as though you're a person in the scene. And so this, we just went, oh, well, let's, let's just see what happens if, you know, you just bang it in VR and let's, let's just jump in and see what happens. And this strange thing happened where just everyone, everyone has that same experience where once they figure out how they can move around, they basically just like zoom themselves right in and they start looking around. And it, it reminded me of the experience that I had when I first started playing. Like I didn't do a lot of tabletop stuff, but like I went to tactics in, in like the Perth, like in London court. 
And I remember like going down there and just looking at like the tabletop layout that they had and everything that they, they'd constructed. And I was just like, <gasps> yeah, I want to stand in this little world. Like I want to squat down and I want to look at the tiny little trees and the water that's been painted in so lovingly. Like I just want to get right in there and look at it all because it's tiny and it's amazing. Exactly. And that's, and that's the exact same experience. Yeah, it's beautiful. I felt it like it was a mixture between exactly that, seeing those big scale, beautiful things that you always to, used to always see in toy shops and what a games shop and whatever, mixed with like the kind of um, real or the kind of life games that you'd see in say Star Wars or whatever, with their kind of like interactive digital chess. Did like, you let, did you let the Wookiee yeah. win? <laughs> you got to let the Wookiee win. Um, but yeah, it's exactly like that. It's it's amazing the ability to kind of be playing a board game, board game, but in VR, so you have full control over everything that you would in say like an AO, AOE world or whatever. Now, Ellen, can you play? Yeah. Um, obviously, it is a it's a multiplayer game. We played against each other um, on the PAX floor. But for the virtual reality experience, is it possible to play against someone and see them on the other side of the battlefield controlling the troops as well? Um, so, yeah, you can you can play against people in VR. So, say going from um, from PC to VR or console to VR, especially if you're using uh, whatever the Steam one is, the Vive, Vive I yep. think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, confused myself. Um, uh, because that is through Steam, it counts as essentially PC as a game. So um, we can we do do crossplay from either consoles, either of the consoles to PC, but not console to console. Um, so in doing that, you can play console to VR or PC to VR. Um, you don't actually see the other person per se, but you can. You know, you can go in and, and play together. Awesome. Ellen, I've got one final question for you. Do you think that any project can be uh, translated to virtual reality or is it something that is sort of inherent about the sort of games that I guess Siegecraft Commander is or, or, or can you kind of make each game work there? Um, I think that's really a case-by-case basis. I mean, we've seen a lot of first-person shooter-type games and first-person games and puzzle games um, and adventure games that use and utilise that, that first-person experience. And that's traditionally what people think of in virtual reality, that, that first-person experience. We found that the kind of God mode view worked really, really well. Um, but that's the first time, you know, we haven't heard of anyone else trying a game like that Aside from us, I mean, they're pro- I'm not saying that no one is. Probably someone is because that's just the way the universe works. But we were very pleasantly surprised and it was kind of this feeling of like, of course this would work. So I, I think it's just a matter of anyone, anyone that's working in Unity should just, you know, go like, well, I'm going to try and make this work. I think, you, you know, you do need a third-person world, like, a, sorry, a 3D world. 2D might be a little bit challenging for VR, but I'd love to see someone Maybe play around with that. Fez, Fez could be an example that would work well in in, in three uh, in you know VR with a hybrid mode between the two of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Ellen, it's uh, your game is going to be coming out in sort of this on the seventeenth of January. In a couple of weeks, really. Now we're almost almost into twenty seventeen. So um, it's a month away. Very yeah. very soon. Um, if people want to find out more yeah. information about it, where's the best place for them to head to? Ah, uh, where's the best place? Uh, they can probably uh, follow us on Twitter. Is probably the best. We we do sun 
you know, keep sending out little tweets and, and updates about it. So that's at Blowfish Studios. And you've got a website as well, blowfishstudios.com, with Dot all of com, your games listed right. on there. Yes. Um, you can find us generally on Steam and stores and things like that as well. So and just, course, I mean, just Google us. We'll, we'll come up number one. So. <laughs> of course, we'll be putting links into the show notes of this particular episode. Right now, though, let's jump into our next topic. Let's do it. Watch episodes, Let's Plays and more at youtube.com forward slash pixelsiftau. So we're all aware of those cargo crates, loot boxes, ultimate chests, or whatever your game devs want to call them. After a steady pour of public disheartenment, China is taking a stand and will require developers to display the probability of item drops online. Is this a step in the right direction or China's just gone too far? Now, Mitch, who's not here but is watching online, uh, is a big fan <laughs> of, of the loot box model. Um, you know, we don't let him near the casino because obviously he likes that sort of uh, gambling model. Um, I, Ellen, I'm interested to hear what you think about uh, the, you know, this model of having a, a sort of a random drop where people can get uh, the, the promise of a good item but are up against the, the gods of random number generators. Mm, well, I think there's a few things going on with um, with sort of, you know, like loot crates and, and things like that. Like I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a gamble thing. I think it's the thrill of the unknown. And I think it is kind of sinking money into an experience and that experience is the element of surprise, the element of unknown. There is a chance that you'll lose, but like whether you win or lose, you've probably paid that real world money one way or the other. Um, so I think people do love it. And I, I remember, like, I think it's, it could have been the first Mario Brothers or something like that. There was, like, this very clear, obvious, like, slot machine thing that happened. But because you weren't paying real money, I think it was somehow considered okay or, like, I don't know. But in, in terms of, like, I, I, I've worked on games where we've had responses back from players that say, this particular, you know, drop is rigged. There's no way you can win. You only get the, the bad prizes. You'll never get anything out of it. Um, once it was a bug and, and it was true, it was rigged accidentally as part of a bug. Um, How do you communicate that to also, your players? Do you, do you own up to it and say, yes, there was a bug and, and we go from there? Or, you know, you guys, I guess the developer is holding all the cards in this particular situation. Can you just keep it quiet? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember what we ultimately decided to do, but I think, like, as as the developers on the team, I think we were like, you know what, I'm happy to be transparent about this because it was a bug, you know. Sorry, everyone, let's, you know, what can we do to, to make it up to you? And that was very much the stance that we liked taking. What ended up happening, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but at the same time, there were many times where it wasn't rigged there wasn't a bug the odds were just very very low to get you know the ultimate drop and that's that's just how that sort of rolls that's the way it works unfortunately and um it depends on the game and it depends on like ugh, talking about freemium games you, you end up talking about whales and um and minnows and dolphins and different types of players. And you kind of talk about time-rich versus money-rich players. 
And money-rich players are the ones that are quite happy to skip waiting times using real money. And there's the players that are time-rich, and they're quite happy to wait till tomorrow for their three crates to refill or, you know, to play and, and grind until they get it. So it's all about kind of risk versus reward and, and that experience, that excitement. Do I think it's a good idea to expose the odds? You know, I'd be very interested to find out whether exposing the odds affected the number of people that continue to pay for, you know, well, the loot crates. When, would, you th- would... when you think about it, odds are often given in normal lotteries. You can go buy yourself a lotto ticket and they'll give you the odds. Yeah. But it doesn't stop people going exactly. down to the local exactly. and, news agent and, and picking one up. And this applies to China as well. Although, like, you know, gambling is illegal in most of China, they do have a state lottery of sorts and, you know, there is pockets that it's plenty legal in Mm. but i think this is a move by china that won't really translate to the western world too much because i feel like this is a push from their like anti-gambling background and there are a lot of adaptions Mm. that are made for for games as they make their transition into china and whether or not this is going to have an impact on uh you know uh western studios or studios from the other parts of the world moving their games into that i mean overwatch and hearthstone and hearthstone is a really good example because if you think about it the collectible card game model is effectively the loot box model and you have that sort of blind box and you open up as many booster packs or whatever you want to call them um in order to to get the card you want but there is that that kind of you know risk reward and whether or not that is is worth it for you um, Look, I hate loot boxes in all of the games that they're available in. Like, I, I uh, the only game that they're kind of suitable and don't kind of completely annoy me of is uh, the Battlefield games because you get some kind of value. F- I think I get some kind of value from them. I don't really like skins and all that stuff, but I do think that the uh, obsession with the Overwatch loot boxes is great, and it's a real testament to kind of Blizzard's artwork and the way that they've developed that as a uh, a big fan following. Look, there could be economics degrees that are done just on the way that Blizzard models its player yeah, behavior and, and, it, and makes uh, you know good money out of the way that they do this. But and another reason, sorry, I'll just say another reason why this loot idea is in the news this week is because a Blizzard gifted Reddit user uh, Coleptic 500 loot boxes um, for some troubles he was having with um, losing some loot boxes over the summer game period. Is it fun though if you get 500 for free? It took him two hours to open them all apparently and he got got back all the ones that he lost but also he he gained like 15,000 in-game currency as well which is pretty sweet. Of course it's fun to open everything you lost. It's like someone stealing all of your audio gear. I find the Overwatch loot boxes the most disappointing of all of them and that's why I don't (laughs) like them. I just leave them. I've got them all masked up. I just don't don't get it. Mitch is a big fan. He's saying on the the Twitch chat that he's... uh, Time rich versus money rich uh, is a great concept uh, regarding the different types of players out there. And he also says that he loves different skins. Yes, and I'm See, sure, that's it. It's, I'm sure it's just does. me. Yeah, I know that it's me not liking skins. I know there's a huge community. And same with CSGO, there's a huge community of people. I mean, look at the CS Lotto. In exactly. It wouldn't exist without people's love for skins. And there's a it's whole just second, not guy. secondary market involved. Mitch had a lot to say on this topic, actually. Isn't it? He, he'd love to be in on this. He's Mitch. very pro loot bucks. Mitch, never go on holidays again. Uh, <laughs> look, speaking of holidays, uh, we're going to have to take a, a very slight break and this is the end yep. of episode 58. Ellen, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Pixel Sift. Um, very interesting to hear uh, about your experiences and uh, keep an eye out for Siegecraft Commander early next year on the 17th of January. Keep it on VR. Yeah, have a go on that if you get a chance to do that. Yeah.
Very exciting. Um, we have a website. That website is www.pixelsift.com.au. Scott, we have also uh, these things called social media. Yeah, many of them. We have facebook.com forward slash pixel sift, twitter.com forward slash twitter.com forward slash pixel sift, twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift, and youtube.com forward slash pixel sift au. And James, uh, we have old episodes, do we not? We have, unlike Mitch, we've got a, a good <laughs> grasp on the 50 something episodes we've had previous to this one. Yeah, we've had significantly more than 28. And uh, you can check them out on our website to stream episodes, subscribe as a podcast, either on iTunes, Pocket Cast, or using the RSS link on your page. Also, Google Play if you're not in the Oceanic region. Yeah. Or Anywhere, if you're, if you're in Americans, the United States, you can listen to it. Presumably you are now. Who knows? You could be anywhere. Uh-huh. I can't listen to it. Uh, thank you very much. We will be back in early January, around the 12th of January. So yep. have a good uh, break over the, the sort of oh, summer for us, yeah. um, winter for other people around the world. Have a good time. We will see, see you soon. soon. Just perhaps you should you know, sift some of your own pixels while you're away. Exactly. Peace out. See you next time. If you're in the market for a super addictive puzzle game, you have to check out Mini Motorways on Apple Arcade. It's a city planning strategy puzzler with an incredibly satisfying gameplay loop. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today. That's sifter.com.au slash arcade for a free one-month trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. New subscribers only, $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled.